If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Take a look, it's in a book, it's Type Beast, baby. Man, it's unfortunate that this is the second time we're doing this book, but it's the first time for the audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> this, is, this is the last, the one lost tape that we got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, it happens with podcasting, right? Sometimes you... Uh, yeah. You lose a file or two, but um, but this is but this is a, a long time. It's gonna be me. better. It's gonna classic. be better than. Yes, yeah, it's gonna be better than um, what we originally recorded, uh, because we have a special guest who uh, knows his stuff about financial literacy. Uh, he's been on the show before. Uh, please welcome Sean Edieme. Hey guys, how you doing? Nice to nice to be back on again. Um, yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. First time generational wealth and race, uh, episode 33. And then, you know, you and you and your bro coming through on our uh, NSARS episode. Uh, NSARS did really well, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure their audiences had a, had a little help for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. The NSARS commentary from um, Shope and, and Shion was, was really good. It's amazing mm-hmm. how times have changed. A lot's happened between now and then. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, for time, sure. For time sure. flies when you're having fun, right? Absolutely. Sort of, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, to our audience uh, today, we're going to be digging into the classic book, um, "Rich Dad, Poor Dad" by Robert Kiyosaki. Right, and so um, we're going to structure it by going through chapter two which is uh, Why Teach Financial Literacy, uh, Chapter 4. Was it five. Chapter 4, Joel? Chapter 5. Oh, 5. Uh, the, rich de- the Rich Invent Money, and then 8. Getting Started. Which is Getting Started. Which is really his 10 philosophies of, uh, let's say, getting started. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I-, I guess the, the question for, for everybody around the table would be, when, or when, about, when did you read this book? Or how long ago did you read this book the first time? Well, uh, Sean, we can start book. with you. <laughs> I read this book probably like 13 years, 14 years ago, right before I joined the industry, before I became a financial advisor. So what, 07, 08? Wow. Man. What, at the time, what would have been your biggest takeaway? I think that my biggest takeaway at that time was the whole thing with assets and liabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it more. But it's just helping yeah. you think through just decisions you make on a daily and how you're taught one thing in school, but real life is different. Mm-hmm. What, what about you, Darnell? What uh, do you remember when you? How long ago you read it? Um, it was a while back. Um... It was a while back, but definitely a game changer. Uh, and then after that, uh, of course, we, we did a type beast on <laughs> why A students work for C students and B students work for the government. 
I don't know if we did a type beast on it, but you reference it all the time. It's basically like we did a type beast. Oh, oh wow. I oh wow. Okay. Um I didn't realize that. Um but yeah, um that book um came after Rich Dad Poor Dad and um the why A students work for C students. That book was was like about teaching, teaching financial literacy in the school system. And so for me as a teacher, I'm thinking like um yeah, even the title, you're like, oh, A students work for C students. What the heck does that mean? Well, A students work for capitalists, right? That, that, that was this kind of idea in that true financial literacy is capitalism. And since the school's against it, it was really good. It was really good. And I would, oh, I would argue that um, his work has definitely um, changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I try to incorporate it in everything I do. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this with, with Sean and, and, and you, Joel. Yeah. And, and, you know, just, you've already referenced a couple other books, but if you look like, I look in the beginning of his book, he's got like five, 10, 15 books that all say best-selling books. So he's got a number of works. Um, I think rich dad, poor dad's probably his most popular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, also, also I would add, I also have his, um, board game rat race. Mm. Oh, okay. I, I, I have the board game rat race, uh, which is, which is, which is really, really good. Um, it takes practice though you gotta you gotta practice at it um and making wise decisions and trying to get out the rat race you um, mean cash flow yeah i was gonna say cash i think the, it's called cash, cash flow, flow. rat race yeah. is the concept it's of the, the yeah, yeah 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 so cash flow so so the idea is you know you're in a rat race um this this inner circle and then you got to make up enough passive income to get out of that into um the the um the uh like kind of like the retired life the the life mm -hmm. that that you want to live versus um mm -hmm. being forced to work and working because you choose to uh so mm -hmm. it's really good so yeah how about you joe you're you're, you're uh you're a full student of this man with the the game the game is a a very like i want to buy it because i i just actually listened to the audiobook again the last couple of days i found it on youtube i'll put it in the show notes page it's probably sticking around i was listening on a couple times speed and he brings up the game as a way for people to have fun, but also learn these concepts. Mm -hmm. Practice. Somewhat of a practice. Exactly. In a practice. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 So even for me, like it, it was helpful because I like to push the limits. That That's how <laughs> my learning from, from mm -hmm. my learning. I like to push the limits to see what's possible, what's not possible. Mm. So I'm always trying to aim high. And my wife is always trying to keep it, you know, stay safe. So we always <laughs> play together and laugh at each other and, and and, and it, me and her really enjoy playing it. So yeah, I yeah, think it's I a think, game I'm think, probably gonna get from Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think for me, I think I read it for like probably just after we started this podcast, so four years ago. Um, and I think there's a one line in there that I've repeated over and over again, especially from a real estate perspective to people, and that is, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. And, and so it's such mm. a, you know, concept that if you get it, it makes all the difference in terms of the way you approach investing, mm -hmm. right? You're investing because you know something is a good value and I'm going to make money on it eventually because I'm buying it based on the value or undervalue compared to the price, mm -hmm. right? Um, as opposed to I make money, like, obviously I don't make the money until I sell it. But the profit component is determined based on what when I buy is really yep. the the approach. And so for those, you know, 
how many people that at the peak of booms are still buying thinking they're making money because why? They don't have that principle in part of them. And people that that I think utilize his approach of investing and make money when I buy actually do much better mm-hmm. at the end of booms because they recognize, hey, I got to hold on. I'll, I'm better off holding cash because the buying opportunities are coming because the, the crash is when everything goes on sale. But anyways, let's I'll, I'll save that till till we get into the book a little bit more. Um, so, and, and I think Shayon, your, your point about assets and liabilities. Um, I think for me, what's funny is I got it right away, but I think, so traditionally an asset is something that you purchase and it's, it represents something you own. And again, I'm using Mm -hmm. more technical accounting terms and a liability is something you owe. But, but he uses a more layman's principle of an asset is something that generates cash and a Money liability is something that re- re- creates an obligation for you to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from a wealth creation perspective, those definitions are much more important than let's call it a technical accounting definition. Um, and so, I mean, Shayon, you, you already referenced that as something that was uh, meaningful to you, but I think... The timing of it is amazing considering the industry you moved into and how has yeah. that, that, you know, approach shaped even, you know, your, your role as an advisor. I think it's, it's one of those things that it's contrarian in the sense that when I'm talking to clients and they're talking about the homes being an asset, I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not an asset if it's not generating you any income, but it's worth X amount of, and I'm like, yeah, it's worth that, but only if you sell it. And if you sell it, where are you going to live? So it's not really an asset. I think your home can become an asset if you learn how to monetize it. And we can talk about that a little um, <laughs> longer in the show and how some of the investors we've worked with started with like a small little townhouse, and now they own about five, six properties and counting. But for the home to become an asset, like the paradigm shit had to change to say, okay, yes, it's an asset, but until you do something about it, other than just living in it, it's not an asset because it's not generating you income. And I think when I read the book, it's one of those things that got my mind churning, what, 14 years ago, because when I was thinking about going into law school and I started looking at the amount of debt I was going to accumulate for going to law school. And I'm like, no, no offense to lawyers, but what are they earning when they get out of school? And, and I looked at the I looked at the income they're earning, and I look at the amount of debt they're carrying, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense for me. There's got to be something better. And so, reading the book began to make me think outside the box. And as God will have it, that's when I stumbled into finance, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, just quickly tell us about a bit about your work uh, in True Wealth. So as a financial planner, um, what I do is basically almost what he does is in terms of teach people how to earn, teach people how to make money, teach people how to grow their wealth. Um, and funny enough, one of the things we've been working on, I've been working on with a lot of my clients, especially in the last three, four years, is using real estate as a means to build your net worth. Um, the Everybody knows how the Canadian market has been in the last maybe 10 years. And I'm so glad that I'm blessed with the kind of clients I have, but I'm also blessed that the clients I have, most of them listen to me because 
when everybody's jumping into the market is not necessarily the right time to jump into the market. Like I've been saying this for like three, four years. This market is overvalued. This market is overvalued. Something's got to give. Wait, sorry, sorry. Which which market is overvalued? The, the real Canadian? estate market. The Canadian. Which one? The Canadian. Okay. The Canadian okay. Just no. Just, just to be clear, just in case people are listening and thinking. Yeah, that's so. right. That's right. The Canadian real estate market is overvalued. Is overvalued. Yes, you can find value here and there, but by and large, um, you're buying a highly inflated asset. That unless that asset is generating income from you from the jump, it's not an asset. Because if you're buying it with the idea that I'm gonna flip it because house prices are going like crazy. House prices you, always go up. Exactly. Right. <laughs> house prices always go up, which is not true. And I've it's it's one it's one tool I've been trying to teach that I teach my clients is just because it's been like that for the last five years, eight years, historically, the real estate market has only brought in maybe six percent annual return average when you mm -hmm. look at it but the key and this is one thing um the book brings out is cash flow right and just like joel said you make money on the buy not necessarily on the sell but the reverse is the case with many people trying to jump into the real estate can at least the canadian real estate market is okay they're trying to they're buying it at inflated prices and yes you may be lucky you sell you make a profit but as he talks about taxes and all of that it's a huge portion of your profits. And those who bought in February, they bought a falling knife in the sense that if you were buying it to flip it in yeah, Feb in 2022 months, as a time. Step, yeah. Was the peak yeah. in, in on what dropped 20% since then? Yeah. Yeah. And some places have even dropped a lot more like Toronto GTA has dropped dramatically. Um, but again, if if you're buying it, if a, if an investor is buying it, okay, I'm buying this for cash flow. Yes, it's amazing that the 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 I can make a profit when I sell it. But if the idea is I'm buying it to earn cash flow, it doesn't matter what the real estate market is doing. It doesn't matter whether whether it, it goes up or goes down. As long as I'm mm -hmm. making money on mm -hmm. an annual basis from that property, I'm in the money because eventually, as the market grows up. I can even decide I'm going to hold that property and leverage it to get a few more, which is what we've done for some of my clients that have six, seven properties is we started that one. But then it's it, there's, a, there's a mindset shift that has to happen from, yeah, my house is an asset, my house is an asset. Yes, it is only if you can figure out how to use it to generate cash flow. You're living in it doesn't make it an asset. So, okay in regards to your clients and uh generating passive income with their real estate is, is it canadian real canadian, estate or american yeah, canadian real estate at this point have you considered american real estate oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> um, um i am in the u.s right now it's one of the reasons why i'm in the u.s right now is mm -hmm. looking for opportunities because for a while i knew the canadian market was highly inflated especially the gta Mm -hmm. Um, but the U S market is for the prices that we have in Canada. Um, you can get a whole lot more in the U S but even can you, outside can, of you, can you give, can you give our listeners a little example, like just small numbers? So, so you can think of a, a four bedroom 
a four bedroom detached house that would go for a million dollars, 1.2. Well, maybe 1.2 at the peak, but maybe like a, a million dollars in the GTA. You can get that in Florida for like 450, 400,000. American right? in the US? Uh, American. So US. let's say 550 American or sorry, 550 Canadian for what he's talking about in the US to about a million in Toronto. About so a million double, in Toronto. Roughly double the price for, for the Double same the thing. price. Now factoring the fact that in terms of rental, it's about the same thing. Right. So if you think if 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 the same four bedroom is rented out, I can I can rent that property out and probably earn twenty five hundred, give or take here in the US for that very same property. But if I bought that property for 400,000 US, my mortgage is much smaller, right? <laughs> my right. mortgage is much smaller. Right. So my margins and my cash flow when I rent that property is much higher than a property that I get for a million dollars in Canada. And at the very least, if you buy it at 20% down, so I have an $800,000 mortgage. At today's rates, a $100,000 mortgage <laughs> is probably... <sighs> Dude, at 6000 that's 4800 Exactly. A year? Yeah. No, no, no. For, for about 4800 Yeah. I yeah. can't even break... It's, it's hard to break even unless I have a, um, a multi-unit pr property where I can rent out the top and rent out the basements. Yes. And maximize yeah. cash flow, but that's not always possible depending on how the house is built, unless you put in more money to make that kind of work. But the whole point is you make money on the buy, not necessarily the sell. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And and uh the problem with that comment is if you're only looking in one market, you you lose the perspective. So if you are in Toronto and you're only looking in Toronto and your attitude is I make money when I buy compared to let's say the rest of Canada but compared to North America you you're you're you need to be finding the places that have a, an undervalue in a relative sense right but if you're only looking in the GTA the even the thing that's relatively undervalued in the GTA is a garbage investment compared to the undervalued in North Dakota like if, <laughs> even if we stay in Canada Edmonton yeah. prices have bottomed out a lot so i know a lot of i know a lot of friends who've moved from the gta toronto to like calgary edmonton because they like i can't keep pace with the with the cost of living here and the cost yep. of houses yeah and right so the same almost the same property they would get for eight hundred thousand in in gta they're getting for 350 four hundred thousand in mm -hmm. calgary and yep. it's not as if the rental market is any different. Yes, the rental rent rent may be a bit more expensive in the GTA, but it's not four hundred thousand dollars more expensive. It's not double. It's not double, right? So it's finding it's finding value, and I've I've learned almost kind of retrained my mind to not follow the herd. There's this herd mentality that it's only going to go up, or you got to get into the market, and so there's fear of FOMO. missing out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's there's this oh I gotta get in, I gotta get in. And I'm like, slow your rolls, slow your horses. You are going to get yourself burnt. And I know clients who've not personal client, but I know stories who've people who've got burnt because 
you don't understand what an asset is and what's a liability. If I buy that property and I cannot rent it out to at least even break even, it's a liability. Yeah, it's going to cost yeah. me money every month. Yeah. It's going to cost yeah. me money every month. Worse off, if that market, if the market value now drops, like in this market that we're in, not only am I losing money on a monthly basis from a cash flow perspective, I'm losing money if I decide I want to offload that. Mm -hmm. right. right. Or if I get caught refinancing and have to throw money at it if if I don't sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, Sean, you were, you were telling me about the book, uh, The Wealthy Renter. Was it you? It might have been me. I think yeah, it was. Have, have you, you've read the book, though. I've I haven't read the whole book. I just kind of skimmed through it. Okay, but I, but think, I, I think you told me about it. But it's basically there's this idea that the only way and see there are people that people fall into in different camps. There are people that say the only way to grow and become wealthy is to buy real estate. And there are people that say um, the only way to grow wealthy is to invest your money in the stock market. And I say, why not both? Mm. Right? Um, you have you have some people that, especially who live in the GTA, because of their work, they can't move outside GTA. They want to buy, but they cannot afford to buy. So what do I tell them? I say, listen, you don't have to live in the house you buy. You can start off as a landlord, go buy a property in Calgary, go buy way back four years ago, before Brantford um, became like a big craze. I had clients buying real estate in Brantford, Ontario. Back then, mm -hmm. I, th I remember one of the first investors we got in there, they got their rental property for 200000 No kidding. Fully detached. It's probably 450 bedroom. Now. It's 450 now. But the they're not thinking of selling, but they've made money over and over again on that. And I said, you don't have to, you live in the GTA, you cannot afford a house here. But if you want to get in the market, you can get in the market as a landlord first and begin to gain cash flow and understand, yeah, okay. Doing it remote. Exactly, right? Be a well, landlord. Especially with the way rental, you know, people sort of understand rental restrictions. If you've been a renter in the same property for 10 years, you're laughing right now because yeah. your rent is half of the market rate, mm -hmm. right? But if you move, you now don't have those, like, because essentially the landlord has the general restriction. And I know it doesn't apply to all properties, but most ignorant landlords just go, okay, whatever the, the rent control restrictions are, i.e., oh, I can only raise it 2% a year. That's all that ends up happening. So right now, you know, you could be renting for a thousand dollars a month, but if you went and tried to find a new place, it's eighteen hundred. It's eighteen hundred dollars a month, two thousand so, dollars a month. You know, as a as a tenant, this person bought a rental property, they but they're keeping the rent sort of let's call it at the old rent rates, and which makes sort of what this strategy even more advantageous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So then I, I guess I guess what we're are we transitioning into the rich invent money? Uh, before we do, five? I just wanted to point out one thing that I think is helpful. Um, partway through chapter two, I'll say in my version of the book, um, which has like, it's a 20 year version or something on page 86, 87 and 88. He shows the cash flow patterns of a poor person 
a middle-class person and a rich person. Um, and it, it's just so telling. And I think it's, I'll skip the middle-class one because it's a little bit complicated, but for the poor person, it's income and pays your expenses. And that's it. Basically the idea of you living paycheck to paycheck, mm -hmm. you have no balance sheet, right? You have no assets. You have no liabilities. You just have income and expenses. The rich person pays all of their, ex their expenses out of their assets. Yeah. Right. And the middle the class goal. basically has the, you know, mortgage liabilities piece, but no assets. Um, but I think if you can really understand this cash flow piece, that's and th and you start to understand that as a perspective, mm -hmm. you start to understand the objective is grow your assets so that my monthly expenses are covered. Really, the idea I think someone referenced retirement earlier, but really that concept there is called financial freedom. When yeah, when your yeah. assets pay your monthly expenses. You have the financial freedom. I could quit my job tomorrow because I'm not stuck paying my mortgage mm -hmm. out of my salary and I have no choice. I can't afford to quit. I can't afford to move. I can't afford whatever. Um, that That's really, I think, where understanding that perspective from this financial literacy chapter, I think, is, is so important because it changes your mindset towards investing, not just, am I going to have this goose egg or nest egg for retirement? Mm -hmm. um, okay, can we transition into chapter five? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So I'll, let's tra transition in this way because the chapter is called um, uh, the rich invent the rich money. Invent money. And it. I think like um, we are, you know, as grown men and with families um, and also being in the Lord, right? Like, like we have a responsibility Um to our families and to God to make sure that we're being responsible and to maximize the time that we have. Um, and so it's important, I think that, um, especially as Christian men, uh, to do right, not just by, um, our, our immediate family, the, the women we married, the kids we have, but also our parents as they get older. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I felt like, um, that my hand is being forced, even though I'm, I, I traditionally am not like a financial, literacy guy um i love my mom and dad dearly i love um my wife's mom and dad dearly and i want to be able to you know do right by them therefore um i have to i don't have a choice i have to become a financial literacy guy um i have or become financially literate and i have to um invent money i gotta find a way to better manage my money and mm -hmm. invent money um so like for us, let's get into that conversation about what it looks like to to invent money. I think he gave he gave many good ideas in the book and talked about sometimes making money is not just about your profession and what you learn to do in school and working a job. It's about thinking outside the box. It's, got, it's about getting creative. It's amazing how many people in um, even just the last two years have with everything that has happened in the world and work going mostly remote many people the, the smart ones have actually made a whole lot of money in this market i mean give it something as simple as okay when the whole mask mandate came in and stuff and some smart people what they started doing is that they got into the mask business and before you know it because masks masks became a thing um even though it was just for what a year two years or thereabout they made money and they moved on to something else and so 
when he talks about the rich inventing money, it's about finding creative ways to make money outside of the regular box that we're told to get a job, work, or work overtime, or get another job. Is you'd be surprised how much um, how much opportunities are there, especially in today's day of technology and internet and the world being global and being able to um, work anywhere. I mean, for instance, I'm in the U.S. now, um, but my work is primarily in Canada. And we're, we're in a generation that these opportunities did not even exist 10 years ago. Mm. So when he talks about the rich invented money, he's finding solutions in the marketplace today and figuring out how to monetize that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think a piece that goes really well with that is um, he talks about two kinds of investors in, in partway through this chapter. Um, and I think his analogy is, is really, really good that he uses to explain it. So uh, the first and most common type of an investor is someone who po- buys a packaged investment, whether that be a mutual fund, some sort of real estate REIT, a stock or a bond. Um, and his analogy is essentially someone who goes to a computer store and just buys a computer right off the shelf versus the second type of an investor, which is what he's really talking about, the, those who invent money, is one who creates investments. And in the computer analogy, the idea is that person bought all of the components of the computer and built it themselves. Mm-hmm. And and really, that's where the inventing of money comes into play because, because you're coordinating all of these pieces is where you potentially have the opportunity to make money out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a simple example would be the idea of like you bought a you know piece of land, but then wholesaled it. So you bought the land for 10 grand, but you wholesaled it for 25 and you might have done that in a matter of five days and made 15 grand out of thin air. But really what you did was you took an investment and put the package together for someone else to walk away with it. Yeah, because so. the because the reality is that most most of us, most people are not trained to think about what happened before you got the finished product, whether that's your phone, whether that's um, a water bottle. Like there's there's so many analogies that we just we tend to think in finished products uh but the person who made money wasn't necessarily the person who sold the phone but the person who put together all the pieces and everything that goes into the phone and so once we begin to think creatively as to what ideas can i put together and looking at the marketplace i always say that is you've got to get a pulse and it's one of the one of the tools of the things he says understand the marketplace is read and learn and know what's going on what are people looking for what are people asking for what are people using and how can you put together the pieces to 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 bring something to the marketplace so i think the one thing for for someone who hasn't read the book if they're hearing this conversation they're like okay but i have no idea how would i ever do that And one of the things he talks about in the book is the idea of like learning a formula for creating an investment portfolio. So he used the example of, um, I think, tax liens in a particular province. There's a story um, in the book where he basically goes to like a seminar, learns the process, and then he goes and finds the person in in the like city who actually works for the office and ends up taking them out for lunch for like the last part of his like investment investigation. 
But the idea was he found the formula and studied it, learned it, and then just implemented it over and over and sort of perfected that formula for creating an investment. So as much as we've been talking about creating an investment opportunity, you're not recreating the wheel. You're taking things that are out there, methods that people are already employing. A great example would be the concept that you've sort of referenced already a little bit, that you have house hacking where you rent out the basement floor and live in the top floor, right? That's an example mm -hmm. of creating the investment. You go and study and learn. And what you'll, was step one of that example would be most likely they're going to say to you, spend the money to make it so that your rental unit is in tip top shape so that you're not worrying about fixing something every other month, mm -hmm. right? So move into the property and, and make that rental unit close to perfection, not perfect, but good enough that everything is well running so that you don't have to think about it. But that's an example where you go and you learn and you study how are other people doing this? Mm -hmm. And then you implement that formula. So as much as we're talking about creating an investment, you're not creating it out of thin air based on, you know, the, the backyard idea you had while smoking a cigar and it just came to you out of nowhere. <laughs> the, the and the first one is usually the hardest, right? Is okay, learning that formula the very first time, and you're gonna take your lumps, and that's okay. Sometimes it's not so much the money you even make on the first one; it's the knowledge that you learn. Um, even taking the concept of tax lien, I have a guy who, and I know um, even Rich Dad he mentioned this in the book, but he didn't go he didn't go into it much more. But he talked about the Mike, my, my my friend. He goes, there's a list of houses that um, the owners are owing years of taxes. And the government does the government wants to collect and the government puts a lien against the property. So what this guy does, he buys the list and he approaches the owners and says, I'm going to pay off your taxes, and all I need to do is you put me a title for X percentage of your home. Most of these homeowners, there's no, they either lose their house or at least they get a portion of the house. Of course, they're going to do that. So he pays off the tax lien and now all of a sudden he's a co-owner of the property. And over time, he can then decide, okay, this, this, the original owner wants to buy out. He wants to move out or something happens. He buys them out. He owns the property. And all of a sudden now he's generating even more cash flow than he was before. Now, this may sound a little cruel, but that's the real world. That's what's going on. And mm -hmm. so he takes his opportunities. He finds his opportunities and goes to these people and say, I'm going to help you pay. You owe $10,000 in taxes. I got you. I'll pay you. I'll, I'll pay your tax. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay off your property taxes, but I own 40% of your property. And just taking ideas like that. And so the property that would otherwise, if he had to go into the marketplace to buy for 300,000, his bought in at the original owner's price of 100,000 or whatever they bought it. It's cost mm -hmm. him what, $10,000 or 20 or whatever that, that what it, whatever it costs him to pay off the taxes on that house. So the government can take off the lien. That's his investment in the house. So he basically bought the house for the cost of the tax payment he made. And now he's a co-owner on that property. And then the, the original owner says, I want to sell the house. He says, okay, you can sell the house to me. I'll buy it because I know that 
I can turn that property into a cash flow. He buys that property. Let's say the, the new market value is 300000 Well, I already own 50% of it. So I'll buy your own $150,000 portion. It's okay. I'll buy it. So he buys the other guy out. Now he owns the property fair and square. He's taking a $150,000 loan to own the, the, the house completely. But when you look at it, a house that was worth 300000 how much did he pay for it? Mm. Right? It's, it's taking those ideas and beginning to think outside the box of just your regular job of working nine to five and, and uh, working extra time. Not that those things are bad. And I don't want anybody to hear that. Those things are good. But what can you, how can you supplement that to begin to create assets that generate income that over time can give you the financial freedom you're looking for? But I think we should. It's about that time to to move on to the to the next section of the the book. But when you first started, you you know, you're the section of what you just said. Um, you made a comment about how difficult it is to make the first, you know, the first one, the first step to to implement that new strategy the first time. And when I was listening to the ebook, you know, or the audio book, sorry, again, I didn't. I I picked up something I didn't really pick up the first time I went through how much he talks about fear so this mm-hmm. so much of this book is pointing out like that people make decisions based on fear and so you know when i talked about the two types of investors the first type of an investor is more fear based so i just want the simple solution that i'm again go to what i said originally it's sort of aiming towards the idea of i got my my nest egg and I'm going to retire. That's the strategy of that first investor that I mentioned. But that's a little bit more fear-based approach. You're not willing to risk anything. But again, that's how you end up in the rat race your whole life, going back to the cash flow game reference. So um, the getting started um, section, as I said, is you know his 10 philosophies. Um, there's one philosophy that I can touch back to the section that we just finished on. Right after his piece about you know, the two types of investors and creating uh, an investment. The last point that he has there is organizing smart people. And and he basically, the part I want to touch on in, in this uh, chapter is he talks about paying your advisors well, or um, I think it's bullet seven or yeah, bullet six, pay your brokers well, the power of good advice. And so in the chapter we were just in, he's talking about organizing smart people. You know, you need your lawyer, you need your real estate broker, you need your these people have specialized knowledge. Leverage. You need your you need your Sean Eddie Emmy. Yes. <laughs> but it's, but also pay for that advice. Because it's not just advice, it's also time. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if I can pay someone to that I trust to do this part of the work for me, that means I know I don't have to worry about it. And I don't have to spend the time to become the expert and make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he, one of the things he actually mentions a lot is the rich dad was the one with the, with the least education, but then he had all these people, accountants and lawyers who were pretty much at his beck and call. He was the C student and, and all the A students were working for him. Right. But the idea there, though, was he had a team of people he trusted who gave him um, advice on certain things. You don't have to be the best at everything. You just and you mm. just need to be good at 
one or two things and really own the space. And the rest of it, you can farm it out. You can build trusted people that can build what you're looking for. Yep. Having yep. good advisors around you, whether that's a, a good accountant, a good financial planner, um, a good realtor, a good business guy. Like one of the things I've I've I'm, I've been privileged is to have um, amazing people around me who have you checked out this idea? Have you checked out this idea? How can we make this work? They don't say no. They don't say it's not possible. They say, how can we make it possible? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why you sh- that's why you pay them for. It's not so much the what they do for you is the the knowledge, the wealth of knowledge they have to the possibilities that are available. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I was going to say um, the idea of, you know, outsourcing uh, division of labor um, and not trying to take on too much, uh, even when you talked about um, doing remote real estate and you can live in the GTA and have a place in Edmonton. Um, but then you would have to find a property manager and someone mm-hmm. to manage, especially especially, you know what I mean? Like not everybody yeah, you ain't flying out to fix a toilet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. So, right. So you kind of have to get used to the idea of using your interpersonal skills and, and building relationships with people, mm-hmm. interviewing, hiring people, and then, and then, and then doing the math on, okay, well, I pay this guy, I pay this guy, and making sure that there's still some kind of cash flow for you after you pay all the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. If, if, if we're talking strictly on just looking at real estate, the number of people they takes to process a transaction um, from a solicitor to the accountant. And even though I may pay my lawyer to do the closing for me, when I pay my lawyer, I know that there are things that he's looking out for me when I'm buying that property, right? I've had my lawyer, I've had a, I've had an offer for a, a seller and the lawyer points out, or even the realtor, points out well you know why don't you i'll give you an example i went into i bought a i bought a uh an investment property with a with somebody a few years ago they were they were basically brand new never done it before well going in because i had bought a few properties i had an idea of some of the things i needed to do one of the things we ended up doing that saved us money was we got the seller to pay off the water heater which had a two, I think a hundred dollars monthly payments on it, and he ended up paying that um, as part of negotiating the the price of the house. We had him pay off the water heater because I didn't want to take on that expense. And something mm-hmm. as small as that may not seem like a big deal. It's just a hundred dollars, but it's not just a hundred dollars. If two years in after buying that investment property, that heater breaks. I've got to come up with the cost of it. But I know that when this property, I know that he he had just bought that that water heater. I know it came with a monthly payment. That monthly payment affects my monthly cash flow. But I was able to negotiate that into the purchase price of the property we purchased. Mm-hmm. And so, but I knew to do this because I've done it a few times, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes when you partner up with the right people, it's not just 
the money you save, or it's not just the money you spend on the outsets, you pay them to, to complete a transaction for you, is the access they gives you, is the, what I don't want to say loopholes, but it's the ways to, to, to fine tune that opportunity and make it even better. Yep. Avoid leaving money on the table because the knowledge base is not yours. You've, you've leveraged the, the team around you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Joel, can you can you uh, read the rest of the uh, list that you have there? Uh, sure. Uh, the the bullet- yeah, yeah. For the so for the 10 points on this, uh, this chapter. So um, take note of number four. I already technically already uh, mentioned it. But so number one, find a greater find a reason greater than reality, the power of spirit. So he's talking about you might want to be financially free. But like, what what are your motivations mm-hmm. rather than oh, I just need money? Um, yeah, yep, taking care of family. Exactly what you had said, right? Uh, as to motivation to be a provider, but not just monthly. Uh, so number two, make daily choices. The power of choice. Um, number three, choose friends carefully. The power of association. Uh, number four, this is the one I master a formula, and then learn a new one. The power of learning quickly. Number five, and I want to come back to this one, pay yourself first, the power of self-discipline. Number six, pay your brokers well, the power of good advice. Seven, uh, be an Indian giver, the power of getting something. Oh, man. How old is this book, book, man? Oh, man. Cancel this guy, man. (laughs) So for his case, the, the first sentence of this number seven is, the term Indian giver arose out of a cultural misunderstanding when the first European settlers came to the New World. If a settler was cold, an Indian would give the person a blanket. The settler mistook it for a gift and was often offended when the Indian asked for it back. So he's he's explaining the term, but mm-hmm. the point is, which I think is great, he used an anecdotal story to make his point, which is the power of getting something for nothing. And sorry, um, sorry. And, and so he's saying, don't be an Indian giver. No, be an Indian giver. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. So the power of getting something for nothing. Um, and then eight, uh, use assets to buy luxuries, the power of focus. Nine, choose heroes, i.e. Um, idols or, or people to look up to, the power of myth. Ten, teach and you shall receive. Sorry, sorry, myth. Sorry, myth. The power of myth. So mythology, or like, you know, looking up to people as the, you know, idolizing them in the sense of, um, you know, things to strive for. Mm-hmm. And then number ten, teach, and you shall receive the power of giving. So, um, and that's uh, he touches on tithing, and and you know, so from the Christian ethic, he references his father tithing and and seeing the value in giving as a means mm. of also um, getting. Uh, yeah. Exa- well, but also like, what does it do for you as um, just the environment that it's cultivating too? Um, mm. So the reason I want to come back to number five is he talks about paying yourself first. And, and I think that concept is so important, but it also ties into the power of self-discipline um, and which is the second part of that. But when he says pay yourself first, he, he actually spends a lot of time being like, okay, I'm not suggesting you need to neglect your bills. But if you 
have a target of, okay, I'm going to pay myself 10%, let's say, of my salary towards savings, i.e. I'm building my asset portfolio with 10% of my salary every month. He's saying, take that first. And I think the method there is that it actually becomes a catalyst for self-discipline because you mm-hmm. recognize that investing in yourself is the priority. So because I've prioritized that, well, now I'm not going to go out for lunch as much, or now I'm not going to spend money on my monthly expenses that I have a little bit of discretion on because I've prioritized investing in myself. And so that 10% you would use to invest in something. I, I just use 10% as a, as a, you know, okay. a number, but, but yeah. the idea is if you com- like committing to that, but similar to the way that Christians would talk about giving to your church out of your first fruits rather than your last fruits, um, there's I've prioritized investing. And so now the things that I've, because I've prioritized paying myself first, I now am cultivating a, a discipline in the rest of my spending. Mm-hmm. And I, I think many of us actually miss out on that that one point, that first one of paying yourself first. Because um, the average person gets a raise, and you would think that with the raise, they would be able to save more. But the reverse actually happens. They save less <laughs> because their lifestyle automatically increases with the raise. But what then I realize is that human beings, we have an innate, innate ability to adapt. And you can use that to your advantage. Right. Like when you pay yourself first, now you have less to live with. But what ends up happening is that you force yourself to live on that less because you need to survive. And so you automatically, without realizing, you find ways to cut back because you've taken out that savings. So you've done two things. You've built your bill in the habit. But two, you've also retrained your mind to live on less. Mm hmm. Right. And I think the second part of that is also when you need more, go back to rich invent money, right? Like you, you strive exactly. to pick up the difference because you're like, no, I got to pay myself first. So in order to pay myself first, I got to go get, I got to go make more money. I got to, I got to find another opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like one of so the things then, my so, wife. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. One, one of the things I love my wife, what she always talks about is when she comes up with, with things, ideas, and I'm, although I'm a, I'm a business guy, I'm an investor. Sometimes when it comes to my family, I'm like, okay, I got to be very careful, a bit more conservative. And she's like, you're the financial guy. Don't tell me no. Let's figure out a way to make it work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But, but that's the truth is, is don't say I don't, I cannot afford it is say, how can we afford it? And um, there's a point actually related to that, which is um, verse eight. I, I wanted to, I, I want to kind of talk on that. Is using assets to buy luxuries instead of um, the power of focus. It kind of ties into one because there's a discipline aspect that comes with once I start paying myself first, um, I create this discipline also that I don't just go out spending on luxuries, right? If I can, if I can create assets i mean i'll give you this classic example many of my clients who want to buy new cars or you you need a new car every so often i say you know what let's wait we have this property rental property in a few years this rental property is going to be worth x 
at this point, even if we decide we're going to take out, um, even if we decide we're going to use this rental property as a leverage to buy a, a, a car, the rental property is generating you cash. So the cost for that car is not coming from your own hard earned sweat. It's coming from a rental property you own. But most people don't understand the concepts of that. I remember I even had this guy come to me, makes good money, okay? But he drives the nicest car and he has a lot of debt. And I said, I said, you're financing a car. And between his wife and himself, they were paying about $1,500 in car payments a month. No joke, $1,500 a month. And I said, do you realize with your income, you can qualify for a mortgage of about between your wife, you and your wife, about a million dollars. Do you realize the leverage your income gives you? But unfortunately, right now you've tied your income to a car payment, which is a depreciating asset. What if we flip that, use your income to leverage it to help you get real estate, which can then begin to generate assets for you? That you can then turn around and say, yeah, I can buy this car rather than using your hard earned monthly income to finance this car. That was like a light bulb moment for him. But those are some of the things that um, opportunities are there if you know what you're doing and if you stick to these principles. Mm -hmm. And just to the final point to that is it might take you three years longer to get that mm -hmm. car. But now you're you're it's not costing you. It's not coming out of your pocket. It's mm -hmm. coming out of your asset portfolio, right? It's mm -hmm. that cost is already covered. I could quit my job mm -hmm. and I still have that car payment covered. In, yeah, in theory. Um, so, and and he talks about that ex example exactly like that in in the in the book. You know, something essentially. Mm -hmm. I wanted to buy this luxury car. Okay, we created a plan. It took us three years to get there because we wanted to create the asset to pay for it first. Mm -hmm. And obviously. It's if you think of it as like a car payment scenario, when the car's paid off, I still have the income. So now I can go do something else with that income. Yeah. Right. So it, it's also in the long term, you become way better off. And in the short term, you know, you've covered your costs. We haven't even talked compounded interest and what mm -hmm. that does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, consider, I mean, we, I think we've hashed out the book quite a bit. Um, but considering the uh, times we find ourselves in, um, Shalom, maybe you can speak to you know people being a little bit anxious. I mean, I think you you already touched a little bit on holding cash, um, but um, um, yeah, how 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 can you know if I use some some big questions or, or some big thoughts to think through? You know, how has history prepare us? How does history prepare us for events like this? Um, you know, how can we protect our wealth with, with the troubling or the unknowns that, that, you know, we see in front of us because of, as we've talked about, you know, the Canadian housing market being at such a high place, although mm -hmm. it's come down, um, you know, potentially there's room to go lower. Um, yeah. What, and then I guess the last thing sort of, I'm assuming, you know, some good financial habits would probably be a, a good way to weather some of these storms. So maybe you yeah. can speak to those things a little bit for our, for our audience and, you know, parting advice a little bit. I think one of the one of the things I always try to tell my clients is your liabilities. Um, pay down your liabilities as best as possible. 
um, because in a market correction with job loss and and the markets where they are, the more liabilities you have, the more you're going to feel the pinch when it happens. Mm-hmm. And so um, liabilities is you have your mortgage, you pay down your mortgage. You have a car payment, do whatever you can to get rid of that car payment. And he talked about, Rich Dad talked about the guy that invests and the guy that, um, that saves. If you can find ways in your room, in your, in your, in your budget to leverage your savings to acquire assets. Now, right now, based on the Canadian market, I don't think is the best time to buy. I mean, well, let me rephrase mm-hmm. that. I think there's still room for the market to correct. So I still I still personally believe that we haven't seen the bottom yet. I think with the next rate hike, probably next month, there's still maybe another 10% or so, maybe 15 that we're going to see in the markets for the, at least the Canadian real estate markets to come down. So those who have cash, I say keep your cash invested in a good, when I say high interest savings accounts, liquid enough that you can use it to buy assets, but um, not necessarily in, the, the whole portfolio should not be in stocks. I think you should diversify. I think you should own different basket of stocks, but I think there should be a portion that you want to leave in a fairly liquid investments that you still earn a return, even though it's not great. But the point of that, of that bucket is to be able to move when the opportunities present itself. And I think right now, um, there are a lot of opportunities coming up over the next few weeks and next few months. And the other part I always, I also add is make it a habit to invest um, monthly, a portion of your cash, a portion of your savings. Because even though you cannot time the market, time in the market is what's going to help you win. Mm-hmm. And we already talked about some of the other ones like paying yourself first. Take that when you earn your income, take 5% off the top, 8% off the top, and just put it away, invest it, and leverage your income to build assets. Because your income is, at least at this point, um, your income can possibly help you acquire assets that you otherwise would not be able to once that income is no longer there. Mm, That's good. That's That's good. good. So, So, Sean, if the listeners are trying to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Um, check out my website, truewealthadvisors.ca. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am Shewadeyemi CFP. You can find me in, on Instagram. I am Shewadeyemi CFP. And yeah, send me a message. Cool. I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes page so they don't have to figure out the spelling. It'll be yeah. in there and make it easy on them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Sean. Yeah. Thank you again. Uh, always appreciate your perspective and um, I'm sure our audience will, will appreciate it as well. No problem. Always my pleasure. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.